This is a Federal News Network podcast. Energy savings performance contracts have been around for a while, and in the new green frenzy, we may see more of them. So when one of these deals goes south, it's worth looking at how and why. The Defense Department backed out of such a performance contract for an Air Force base. Now it's headed to court. We get more on that case from smith Pactor mcwhorter procurement attorney Joe Petrillo. Joe, tell us what happened here. So this was a case involved, as you mentioned, an energy savings performance contract. That's an interesting program that's been around for a while, and it allows an agency to enter into a contract for an energy savings program. And as part of the program, the contractor gets paid a portion of the savings in energy costs resulting from implementation of the program. The program can be as simple as changing light bulbs or more complex, like rebuilding an energy grid, having alternative sources of energy. All of these programs, um, however, are procurement contracts, and they involve a long term, up to 25 years, so the contractor can recover the costs of studying what the energy savings program should be, implementing it, and then maintaining it for its uh, useful life. So in this case, the government was taking a two-stage approach, and it never really got out of the stage one. Right, right. And this illustrates some of the procedural hurdles faced by contractors trying to get a day in court. What happened in this particular case was that AECOM got a multiple award contract from DOD for such services, and they called the MADOC program run by the Corps of Engineers. And the government issued a solicitation for one of these energy savings performance contracts to all the MADOC contract holders for work at Buckley Air Force Base, which is a facility of the U.S. Space Force. The government selected AECOM as the awardee, authorized it to proceed. Uh, AECOM did the first part of the contract, which, as you mentioned, was a feasibility study, design, and price proposal for the project. So it figured out what was the best way to achieve these energy savings, had a design of how to do it, and had a pricing proposal for implementing the program and getting a share of the savings. At that point, the government decided not to go forward. It did not accept the price proposal and implement the system, and it did not exercise an option it had to get use of the design that the contractor had written. AECOM, however, felt that the government had, in fact, taken over and used its design and felt that the government really hadn't been forthright in that regard. It had used the design and not compensated it. So it's filed a claim for compensation. So basically, the the company was saying the government stole the plan. Well, it isn't put in that that sense. But when you take something that's not yours and and you uh, own it and use it, that's uh, (laughs) that is the issue. And and that then becomes an interesting legal question. After the claim was denied, the contractor filed an appeal to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, and that appeal hasn't been decided yet because there was a procedural issue. First, the government moved to dismiss, and it had two grounds for its motion to dismiss the appeal. One was, well, you know, we didn't accept the option and we didn't continue the contract, so there isn't any contract here. And the board said, wait a minute, there's this multiple award MATA contract. There's the second contract you awarded to AECOM for Buckley Air Force Base. And the contractor, AECOM, also alleged that keeping the design and using it created an implied-in-fact contract. So we've got three different contracts to adjudicate here. That's not going to get anywhere. The second argument the government had was, 
Well, since we didn't exercise the option, there was no breach of contract. And this is the tort of conversion. And here we get into this fairly complicated legal procedural issue of what happens when someone who doesn't have the right to use something takes it and exercises control over it. And and, and there are two ways of looking at that. One way is there's a tort called conversion. You can't take someone's property, use it without subjecting yourself to the possibility of paying compensation for that as a tort. However, when you're in the context of a contract and you've taken control or dominion over an item and you haven't paid the compensation or done the thing necessary under the contract to have that right, then that can be a breach of contract. And the board looked at it and said, well, yeah, conversion can be a tort, but it can also, in this context, amount to a breach of contract. The contract had a procedure for the government to obtain the right to use this study, and it didn't do that. So the argument here is that it breached a contract. Right. So if it had breached a tort or had caused a tort or some damage to the company, maybe the company could take the government to another court, but not to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. Exactly. That is the issue. But the board found that there had been a breach of contract, so therefore they said, yes, it belongs here. This well, there was an allegation of a breach of contract. Right. Now, the contractor will finally get its day in court, and we'll see if it can prove its case. But it's unfortunate that the government is you know, throwing up these procedural arguments, especially in a context where it doesn't seem like they have a lot of traction to deny the contractor its day in court. There's an issue here. It needs to be decided. And it's something that, unfortunately, contractors have to keep in mind when they do business with the government. If things go south, they could be facing complications like this and procedural motions to uh, to complicate and increase the cost of litigation. So in this case, then, AECOM had, in a sense, delivered a product, which was a piece of intellectual property on how to design an energy-saving system and what the payback would be and so forth. So that gave the government the possibility of moving ahead, say, with another contractor to actually execute on that plan. But nevertheless, by delivering a plan, AECOM felt it was due compensation for what I'm calling intellectual property. That's right. AECOM, under this contract, did its part, performed its work, and it feels that the government now has the benefit of its plan and is using it. So we'll see what happens when uh, when push comes to shove in the next case. So, so far then, just to make sure we understand, the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals has said, yes, we have jurisdiction over this, but they haven't actually ruled on the merits. Exactly. We finally go to the next stage and see what the substance is behind this case and, and if the contractor is entitled to compensation. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access 
to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.